listeners, and welcome to the show. This is Every Record Ever Recorded, a field guide to the music of Earth. I'm Hannah, and my guest today is singer and teacher Eva Selina. Eva grew up in the American Balkan music scene, studying with Balkan musicians in diaspora as well as fellow enthusiasts, and she's been part of the wave of musicians to recenter their study in the actual Balkans since the fall of the Iron Curtain. I found a lot of refuge and inspiration and permission to a certain extent within the Roma traditions from the Balkans because improvisation and self-expression was so deeply built into the songs that it felt not only a suggestion, but a requirement that I personalize my participation. Eva has sung with bands, including Slavic Soul Party, but her primary musical thing at the moment is her duo with accordionist Peter Stan, with whom she's made two albums. She teaches in many different contexts, including as an adjunct professor at NYU, and she's the music director of the Jalopy Choir in Brooklyn, New York. She's here today to talk with me about vintage Romani vocal music. Roma people, Romani people showed up on the European continent more than a thousand years ago. They're a people who have been in diaspora forever, so there's no homeland, but also eternal diaspora means infinite diversity culturally on all the levels, linguistically, social structure, religion, and of course, aesthetically and musically. You know, Romani music from Turkey and, and the music that's made in, in Spain are going to be utterly different from each other for a whole host of reasons. Also, what a different Roma population will identify as their Roma language can vary tremendously. Whereas, you know, a lot of the Slavic Roma in, in Macedonia and Serbia will speak Romanes, which is an Indo-Aryan language that is most closely related to languages spoken in Rajasthan, in northern India. Some of the, the Roma in Bulgaria will use Turkish as their Roma language. And there's a lot of really complex identity politics around language and religion. Um, there are a lot of Muslim Roma. There are a lot of Christian Roma. There's, you know, Easter, either Eastern Orthodox or a huge influx of evangelical and more born again. The kind of widely accepted origin story is that they, they come ethnically from uh, three lower castes from Rajasthan in northern India that under some harsh, I'm sure, conditions mixed together and created this new group of people who were then sent in forced migration through Afghanistan, Persia, into everywhere in the rest of the world. However, 
the word gypsy originates from a misconception that they were from Egypt. That's a word in transition. It's a, it's a big word in transition, and there's a lot of resistance to it inside different Roma communities. It's not like everybody has agreement on it. But if you can think about the fact that it's eternal diaspora and there's these infinite cultural dialects, like finding some kind of unity is, it, is an evasive and, and very difficult thing. Um, however, I choose not to use the word gypsy because the people that I love and respect within the community who hope to shed both the ridiculously romantic and the horribly damaging stereotypes that accompany that word. And so in terms of, you know, what kind of, what does vintage mean? Everything that we're going to listen to is pre-YouTube. Because YouTube has really shifted accessibility in a huge way for me and everyone else <laughs> in yeah. terms of, you know, just how we're influenced and how we're inspired uh, in, in what we create and how melodies move around really fast. In the past, maybe melodies came through in film. A lot of people found music from cassettes that would get brought from one person to another or 45s that you'd buy at a flea market. There was a lot that happened in the 60s with Motown and all of that kind of making its way over. You can like Esmeraldipova's Romanochoro. video is just straight out of the late 60s who cares when it was recorded like that's where it takes place and aesthetically and or or film which i also have like a really exciting example of of a film a way a song moved from film the lines between folk music and popular music are very very thin in what we're going to listen to because you can notice some kind of specific stylistic differences from one community to the next, but also these songs were written and became kind of instantly integrated into a more common repertoire, and the songs would be shared, and the songs would be sung by a lot of different people, and so where do you draw the line if they sound of a place and of a time and of a people? Like, how are they not folk songs? So we, I've arranged things in chronological order, but that's not necessarily the order in which they came to me. I, was, I moved to the East Coast 12 years ago. And I've been living in New York. Uh, my friend Sedo Salifoski, we were playing a little bit of music together. And he's like, what about Gashinea? Do you know Gashinea? Gashinea? She kept, he kept saying it over and over and over. And at some point I was like, well, are you going to like give me a cassette? Or like, are, we, are you going to throw <laughs> me a bone here? And so he uh, gave me this wonderful cassette. And I knew nothing about the guy. I know now that, you know, he's, his, fa his son is a really famous singer and and but he was like one of the old school guys and he's from Kosovo and so the instrumentation at the time it's like jumbush which is comes from Turkey which is like kind of weird banjo always out of tune <laughs> with a big uh it's like has a big belly but the belly just looks like the cheapest aluminum pot for cooking you could buy mm -hmm. and I love them because they're just never yeah they're never in tune and then like some really weird sounding clarinet that is almost like like taragot like almost has a sound more like something that would be used like in Romania or Hungary like it just has mm. some kind of out sound I've taught this song for a while and it's about someone who wakes up early in the morning is dealing with alcoholism is trying to find 
a way to stop drinking, but also is really craving booze. So that's Kashi Neat singing Ushti Jum Daebre Ranu Sabaile, and uh, I just love kind of the swagger of it. You feel it's a storytelling song. It reminds me a lot of country music. The tension that exists in these songs, often a real, like a happier, this one's like more in the mid-tempo range, but some of the happiest sounding songs are the most devastating lyrics. Mm. And there's some resonance there in the listener, whether or not you understand the language, because you can feel, you can access something kind of plaintive in the singing that you could think is discordant, that doesn't agree with the the sound, like the feel or the tempo, but... But actually, I, I just find it to be a much more honest reflection of life. Like, A, if you're a musician and you feel like shit, you still have to work. <laughs> but but B, that there's like some bandwidth in the song to like bring in whatever it is that you're dealing with. And like, you still need to celebrate. Like, you still need to blow off steam. You still need to kind of feel like you're alive and in the world. But on the other hand, I think about kind of the role that Roma have played, Roma musicians have played in society for hundreds of years. It's like, bring us the party. Okay, bring us the party. Everybody's dancing. And at the same time, you're singing about your real stuff in the language that the people who hired you don't speak. Right. I hesitate to to make, you know, too general a statement about anybody's role in anybody's society. But I do know that Roma, as much as they've been marginalized as people, have been praised and engaged as musicians. Weddings and parties and serenades and parades and all those things for many, many, many years. Most of the musicians that I know in kind of contemporary society are are hired to play a lot of internal community events still. So that's weddings, it's either christenings or circumcision party, depending if you're, you know, Christian or Muslim, engagements, birthday parties. But, you know, in the last 40 years, now the term, or 50 years since the term world music came to be, then there start to be more public venues and opportunities. And you have a whole host of European concert promoters and record labels who really glommed onto a few different bands and some very specific moments in time in the last 30 years. 
and created a whole scene around typically around the brass bands, like from Romania or Macedonia or Serbia, and then also around the, some of the string music, like from Romania, for example, which I'm not actually naming those names because I don't think that they, I need to fuel the fire of those particular promoters <laughs> and record labels like anymore, because that's like, they've created the lowest common denominator yeah. in Roma music. And then, you know, add to that, like the DJ scene, which completely took over Europe and, mm -hmm. I find it kind of abominable, actually. <laughs> like, it's like, okay, like everybody can do some like weird Cossack dance to something that goes like, mm -ch, mm -ch, mm -ch, but like, <laughs> we could push people a little further, you yeah. know? And the festival circuit has become this like super bombastic brass remix. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love brass bands, but I don't love what the Western European festival circuit has done to the brass band tradition someone a friend of mine who's a journalist wrote a piece about my last album and she used this she said something about re restoring the interiority so like finding these intimate spaces within tradition and bringing them and kind of highlighting them and reactivating them and so like That's what inspires me, and that's the space that I would hope to inhabit is like this for kind of forgotten musical spaces that have been totally eclipsed by this more bombastic sound. And so, like, for example, is to move to another track. I was recording, uh, like, four years ago, five years ago, I decided to record a tribute to Shaban Bayramovich, who was pretty much, like, also, like, the most famous male Roma singer to come out of the Balkans. He was from Serbia, And he became pretty famous mostly by being exploited by Goran Bregovic and Emir Kusturica, filmmaker and, and composer in reverse order, uh, who made a lot of like the Roma version of black exploitation films mm. <laughs> on some level, like <laughs> hyper sensationalized, entertaining, but really a cultural caricature. Yeah. And there's some always Are either some, one of them of Roma heritage. Not that I know of, but like certainly they've made a lot of money off of. Roma culture and stereotype. I'm not going to say they didn't bring that music to a lot of people's ears because of course they did, but like, so did the Bulgarian women's choir. And that's already like an extension of tradition, or that's already like taking a tradition and saying, let's like, create something that is palatable to a Western ear. Right. Like you're already they were Bulgarian. Though. They were Bulgarian. That's yeah. Something. Well, and, and the, and the, the musicians who played and played on the soundtracks of all those films were Roma. I mean, Shaban's music was used extensively, but where things went a little wrong was around crediting and, you know, all the, the paperwork, all the backstory, but mm -hmm. I didn't want to make a tribute to a living singer. And I also didn't want to make a tribute to a female singer just because I felt like the lines of comparison would be so direct Yeah. So when I when I listened to Shaban, I was like, okay, like there's no way I'm ever gonna sound like this dude, like ever, ever, ever perfect. So I knew that the songs would have to transform, and I found the permission within what I was talking about. Like here it is, like you have the song, and how do you show us that it's you within the song? How do we know that it's you? And so I felt a great responsibility to anchor the songs, knowing that arrangement wise we would totally reinvent, but. I thought I'd heard every song that Shaban had ever recorded and chosen from them. I chose only Romanesque language songs, so I didn't choose any songs in Serbian. But we had tracked all the big, like the big band kind of songs, and then I found this one on a reissue from a German record label 
this this song that Shaban had recorded in like 1968, and I was like, oh my god, this is so beautiful. This is like perfect. And I played it for Peter Stan, and I just said, hey, like, can we record this as a duo? And it also is a beautiful example of Shaban, like in his very early years, when he still had all his teeth. <laughs> So I think uh, somebody must have been listening to a lot of like westerns. So much, so much. I, I was thinking about that as we were listening to it. I was like, "Is this? Have I just been missing the whole time the the like Ennio Morricone and Balkan Brass?" I exactly. Mean, just, but but that was particularly Ennio Morricone. And so it? laid back and kind of nonchalant. And I just thought, "Wow, what a special, what a special track." Yeah. I mean, later on in his career, Chauvin tried to do all kinds of like Latin jazz things, which were disastrous, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, there's this funny thing, uh, my partner and I always talk about, about how I say the gaze goes both, both ways. The gaze goes both ways. We think, we spend all this time observing and trying to learn from all these other musicians. And if we present ourselves as fully formed musicians rather than just students, we will also be observed mm -hmm. and appreciated mm -hmm. and maybe even a source of inspiration. And so, you know, one of the things that, that my partner encouraged me to do, especially making the Shaban album, was not to think of myself as a student and to approach musicians in Serbia as in direct collaboration rather than try to get downtown jazz horn players in New York City to try to sound like Serbian Roma musicians, I said, why don't you just play this line like you would play this line? And then when we need to get that sound, we'll just go to Serbia and get that sound. And I think that like, that's that paradigm, that model, I think is actually a much healthier model in which you approach another musician as a musician. And you can humble yourself and say like, okay, I want to like, I want to really learn and immerse myself in what you're doing, but also like, 
the concept of exchange and the possibility of exchange is much more interesting in terms of how we exist in global community. I'm not going to masquerade as an Appalachian ballad singer. Like that's not, that would be more disrespectful than me singing the music that I've been singing my whole life. It's less of an identity crisis for other people who are trying to figure me out to think like, Oh, she's going to sing American music. She's American. But like, I love feeling how those things mix together and how natural they actually can. Like I love that Ennio Morricone Mm -hmm. touch kind of continuing in that theme of borrowing Every summer when I'm going to teach at one workshop or another, it always sends me on a long spiral of YouTube. But I found this one and it made me so happy. It's a couple of years ago. And the title of it is Dosti, which is, uh, which means friendship in like, I mean, in many Indian, Pakistani, like South Asian languages. And I thought, I listened to the melody. I was like, this must come from a film. This just must be totally taken from a Bollywood film. Uh, and at that, I was really into like music from the early seventies in Kosovo, Roman music, like that year. So this was, this was that song that was like my happy thought. And it was recorded by Ramush Ramushi, uh, on a beautiful little four, uh, 45. And I, he actually was one of those people who went on to have a significant career. After, after that, like you can find a lot of recordings by him. But one of the things that I love actually about the recording industry in former Yugoslavia was that it was centered in Belgrade and kind of anybody could come and like bring their little songs and make their 45, you know, four, (laughs) three songs and an instrumental with whatever house ensemble they had. So you you can find a lot of these 45s. It's like there's one Emina Hadri. We'll listen to her a little bit later. Like she recorded two songs and two songs ever. Oh. But she was able to somehow there was there was an accessibility that wasn't based on anything but but musicality, it seems, from the from the range. So let's listen to uh, Ramush Ramushi singing Dosti, which is also written some which means friendship and is written sometimes as Priatelstvo which means friendship also. But uh, the lyrics in this one are really sad. It's like, since I was born, I've been really poor. I have nobody to look after me. I wander around the streets, like begging for money so I can send Ramo to school. So you figure Ramo could be like a sibling. So let's have a listen. Oh, oh, oh. 
So that was Dosti. You would never guess that was such a sad song. Right? There's that tension. There's that funny contrast, which I think is actually very healthy. I think that we have a tendency, whatever, like to align with a one dominant emotion or we're taught conditioned somehow that like some one thing has to really rule supreme in any moment. But like, I don't know about you, but I feel like five different things at any one time, pretty much all the time. And it's nice to be able to occupy a more complex emotional terrain. Mm -hmm. So like I say, I'm, I'm not an academic. I don't always do my homework in that very specific way, but I always have my theories. And so this one, I was like, it's gotta have come from a Bollywood song. There's a long history of a Roma fascination with Bollywood movies and mm. music. So I was, a couple months ago, I had been teaching as an adjunct at, at NYU, and I do this occasionally in the experimental theater wing. There was a one woman, young woman in the class who was from Uganda. She's like third generation in Uganda, but she's Indian. And I was teaching the song and we were, we we're going through it. And I said, you know, like, this is my theory about the song. She's like, I know this song. No way. And I was like, no shit. And so she <laughs> found it on her phone and she played it. And we were like, whoa, I mean, you can see, you see like this skeletal connection. Like mm-hmm. a lot of things are very different, but I, um, she's in Uganda. And actually when I knew you were coming, I wrote to her, I was like, I looked through all my emails. I couldn't find it. So I was like, can you send me that song? So here's the origin myth substantiated yeah. of Dosti. Oh, that's awesome. And it's from a film called Dosti. Not surprisingly, this film was made in 1970 and the song Dosti that we listened to just now was released in 1973. So as you can imagine, those are these kind of vindicating moments where like, okay, my intuition and my brief foray into ethnomusicology as an undergrad were not, (laughs) you know, that was not a total waste of time. (laughs) Basic math. I got basic musical math down. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, so 
the song that I'd like to play next is a song that was also recorded in Kosovo the same year, but has a totally different vibe, much more of like a Turkish urban vibe. And, you know, with the Ottoman Empire being in, in parts of the Balkans for as much as 500 years, language, music, modal systems, all those clearly had a, a very strong imprint. And this woman, Emina Khadri, is the one who I only found two songs that she'd ever recorded. And until this morning when I was making this playlist, I had never even heard the second one. Oh, wow. I had only heard the first one, which I had, which I have taught, and uh, I have one student who calls it the attitude song, because it's the closest to like a female like liberation song. She's like, "No, mom, like, don't just marry to me to any, don't marry me to any random dude. Like, I'm gonna marry who I want, or I'll die." <laughs> Whoa. So, it, but it's kind of has this. It's that very, very uh, empowered lyrics uh, sung in this kind of like languid like you can almost see through it style against a, a more kind of urban turkish like earlier 20th century kind of feel so this is gelum kobiav daye Actually, more late 70s, I think. But yeah. you feel the... It sounds older. Yeah. And at the same time, like, I feel like there's a little bit of that Bollywood, that kind of, like, languid, naive, mm-hmm. feminine thing happening. But I loved her voice. And I yeah, loved... wonderful. I loved finding out what the lyrics meant and being like, whoa, there's a lot more sass here than I necessarily felt. So those last two were both... Kosovar Romani songs from the 70s, and they are very different from each other. Are they, are either one of them sort of more like what a typical Kosovar Romani song from the 70s would sound like, or is there even a typical? I mean, I think that the first, what I would imagine is that the first guy, the very first guy that we listened to, Nehat, mm-hmm. Nehat Gashi, mm-hmm. is, he's like, more exemplifies, a, I mean, what's pure? To begin <laughs> with. But instrumentation yeah. wise, you know, with violin, with clarinet, some kind of oud or lute or like jumbush or, you know, like a strummy thing. <laughs> like, 
you know, that's kind of a more, what I would call a typical sound. There's all this movie influence, this Indian movie influence in Dosti, and then you have this very, like, Turkish, more Chalgia-like kanun, and maybe Jumbush, and, you know, violin, like, city music. Mm-hmm. People also use what they have. And, you know, for example, like, the house band when Emina Khadri recorded this was the band of Medochun, who was one of the most famous clarinet players. Like, he recorded on tons of Esma songs. But, like, you know, she could have just been lucky. Like, that was the the house band that day. And I don't know, you know, with a lot of these songs, I don't actually know who wrote them necessarily. But I wanted to jump to Trajko Aydarovic Tahir, definitely a contemporary of Shaban Bayramovic. They're born in the same town. Trajko is a little bit younger. He was born in, I guess he was born in 51. And he died in 2009. But he had a really beautiful sound. And I think oftentimes, like, if there were two people that occupied a similar place, it was very easy for one to get edged out. I mean, I can't even imagine Esma edged out countless, countless other young, talented women in her career. Um, not unintentionally. But this guy, I think he had a lot of really, a lot of beauty and power in his voice and is well known for a number of recordings. Like I think he, I think he recorded maybe Ramo Ramo, but he recorded some kind of famous iconic songs. I just, I love the production values of this one recording that he made in um, 82. So we're jumping forward a little bit. I think this was kind of a golden age in Serbia for Roma music, the early eighties. So this is, this is one where just the, Melody follows some interesting, unexpected places. I mean, that song for me, like, is an interesting combination of the brass band tradition, which is so much more common in southern Serbia, in like around Niche, where this guy was from, but with kind of the more like string tradition that might be more common in other parts of Serbia, more in the north. And then there's the percussion, raka, boom. Raka feels more Macedonian to me. Mm. So there's this kind of like nice confluence 
but it still feels like super down home, like really chill. And I think that's that I like, I'm drawn to that kind of music in terms of the Serbian Roma stuff because it is in such stark contrast to the brass band tradition. Mm-hmm. So what would people have been doing when this music was playing? What are, what are the non-musicians doing? So we're moving into, as we go into Serbia in particular, like in this time period, we're moving into more listening music. There's like dance music and there's listening music. And so dance music being mostly for really important like life ritual functions, which is weddings are the big, 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 big one. Mm. You know, it's like you get to be like sexy and beautiful and celebratory and then you become a wife (laughs) (laughs) and you serve your (laughs) (laughs) mother-in-law forever. But no, there's a really, you know, big display of wealth and generosity and community and inclusivity and fertility and possibility and all that stuff. And so that's like endless dancing. And a lot of times outside, traditionally, you know, in the neighborhood. So there were kind of circles of participation where there's like people in their balconies watching down. And there's like even within the dance structure, there's going to be family at the front of the line, family dancing around the front of the line, musicians in the middle following the, the dance. And then, you know, depending where you are in the social structure, you dance kind of towards the end or, you know, there's, so there's a whole language of where you situate yourself relative to whoever's throwing the party. A really funny story. I was in Bulgaria in 2005 and we had gone from Istanbul to Bulgaria to go with this uh, Bulgarian Roma musician, Pesho Vojnikov, who was playing at a, he lives in central Bulgaria, like in Hoskovo, basically like in Thrace and, he was playing this wedding and there had been terrible rains, like torrential rains all over Europe that summer. And we got to the, we were, we were there with the musicians. We got there like super early to set up outside this house running a single extension cord that was like run from like some skanky outlet in some village house. And they had a tiny little bottle of rakia like on top of the mixing board that would like, if the rakia was shaking in the bottle, like that's how you knew it was too loud. (laughs) I was like, how is the, how is the house like not blowing up from the amount? Like they were running like four wireless mics, like an electric drum kit, like two keyboards, like (laughs) clarinet, you know, everybody with wireless mics. I mean, the amount of like intake is like, (laughs) is so crazy. And and so we got there to the place where we were supposed to set up, which was the mother, I think the mother of the bride had paid for it all. And in front of her house in the street, it was a dirt road. The entire road was a puddle. And so they were like, fuck, well, what are we, you know, what are we, we can't set up here. So they moved 15 feet down the road to set up. And she came out of the house and just started like wailing on them, like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like you, I'm paying for this party. Like you have to set up in front of my house. And so they were just like <laughs> looking at the road and like how ridiculous this the whole scenario was, but she's like, I'm paying you. You're going to play in front of my house. So the, so they, they were set up on this like tiny little, like four feet wide, like strip of land, like next to his massive mud puddle, like in front of her house. <laughs> and so like the dancers, like we were just trying not to get soaked in mud. Like it was like, it was like this little isthmus, you know, it was, like, it was so, but it was one of those things where it was like, that's how we do it. Like, what, how are you going to not understand that? Like, this is where you have to play. And yeah. was, but there is a, there's a really 
stark difference between listening music. It's like the, you know, oftentimes when Peter and I are performing, I'll say, you know, look, we're, we're singing this song to you like seven hours too early in the evening. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, or even worse, like we played, we played a show, a noontime show at the Library of Congress last month. And I was just like, it's really hard to like play this in a well-lit space with like full daylight. It's hard to get yourself <laughs> into that you know yeah space psychologically because it normally would have been played like on a dancing night after the dancing is done but late at night so there's kafanas are these places where there's food and music and sometimes dancing but sometimes just sitting and chain smoking and getting really drunk and listening to songs that make you cry and think about your youth that you will never reclaim you know that's kind of the it's the heartache the heartache hour so they're they're not really they're kind of kind of like torch songs on some level, like just dramatized emotions, but like very visceral, relatable themes. I find that like, for example, in Serbia, a lot of the songs that are in Serbian are like way too kind of just basic cliche, kind of topical love songs. Some of them are really powerful and moving, but for the most part, I prefer the songs in Romanes because I just feel like there's just one less filter in terms of how direct people are with their expression. I thought we could listen to just a one of another song of Traiko, just to hear his kind of expressive capacity. Also just because I'm committed to amplifying voices that didn't get quite so famous. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so here he is. Chera dale, chera mamo. not quite like Elvis in the Las Vegas recordings, you know, but it has a little bit more of a lounge yeah. vibe, this more like nostalgic, reflective, a little more open space for contemplation or drunk crying. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Everybody in that song is sitting down, the people listening to it, the people making it. But it has a little bit of like arms a... around each other, exactly. lighters in the air. Exactly. <laughs> We're like kind of on to the parallel play portion of the evening. Right. Like, we're thinking our own thoughts, sadly. I heard yeah. a, you know, I heard a great quote at the smoking table at Mendocino camp. Mm-hmm. For those of you who are listening who have not been to Balkan camp in Mendocino, it happens in the Redwoods and there is one place where you can smoke. It was maybe three or four in the morning and my friend Mina, who's the wife of a phenomenal musician, Kalin Kirilov, she looked at me and she said, 
it's that time. And I said, what time? She said, the uvazhavash lime ilineme uvazhavash, which in Bulgarian means, do you respect me or do you not respect me? <laughs> and that's the time where, you know, it's, it's, it's bedtime. Mm-hmm. You just walk away from the table because yeah. things get to that kind of like, it's so raw, it's so on the table. Um, but I always love that because it's such a great barometer. Mm-hmm. But can we stay in that really late night place yeah. for the most epic song of all time? Oh, yes. So Vida Pavlovich, who died at a very young age in 2008, I think at 60 years old, Drank herself to death, actually. You know, always it says complications of alcoholism. So there, and sadness, I'm sure, extreme sadness. She was a phenomenal singer from Serbia who had a pretty prolific recording career. But I just wonder who she might have been if she had, you know, been around a little bit longer. I decided I wanted to make an album of her songs with Peter, just a really intimate, spare space. And when I heard this song. I knew that I had to sing it and I was so utterly terrified by it that it, we had kind of rushed to a first set of recording sessions, which happened to be like two days after the election in 2016. So we should have known like nothing was going to go well. Everybody was experiencing personal hardship and the nation was in mourning in a sense. And, and I got so sick trying to learn this song. Oh, no. I became physically ill, like from this song. And I think, you know, as a singer too, there's these times where the music or the, or the lyrics or something is too immediate and you can't find that separation. And like where I was in my life, I felt like things were moving in, a, in, in the direction where I might resemble that remark. I might <laughs> resemble that song. And I just didn't, I didn't have a lot that I felt like I could really hold on to. Uh, the song, the gist of the song, the first line says, give me peace because you're eating my heart. Hey, Mom! 
Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> no joke. She's no joke. Wow. And I think, wow, must have been really hard to have to contain all that sadness. Yeah. In the body. Yeah. I mean, clearly it was. A lot of women in particular in a lot of really hardcore music scenes around the world who have had this similar trajectory to hers. And she's so deeply loved. Like her voice is so deeply loved amongst people who know, but really in a limited, in a limited scope. She's saying a lot of really like kind of annoying, simple Kafana songs too. But you know, she, she did choose some really amazing songs, particularly the songs that she sang in Romanes mm. were deep, heavy. Um, just I thought we could listen quickly to another one. Yeah, let's. This is, I think, about someone who was left behind and is pretty pissed off about it. <laughs> What's cool about her is that even when it's this kind of like, but, 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 but kind of this really like up-tempo, like very like Serbian feel, she still keeps it dark. Mm-hmm. Like she still manages to find that the fluidity and the expressiveness and the like flow will float. She'll float over the, the rhythmic nature rather than kind of just get caught up in this peppy thing. And I, I, Love singers like that who aren't afraid to just like hang out in the, in the depths and the dark places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so she, you know, you could hear in, in Demamiro, the a string, that string tradition that I was talking about in Northern Serbia, where she's from, where it's tambura, tamburashi, like, you know, the same instruments, like big brach and, you know, different variations on kind of the guitar family. And violin and, you know, some accordion also too. But it's that string tradition. And I love just even within Serbia, how much variety there is in the Roma traditions. And Shaban also, even though he was from the South, he also embraced that range. So he would even record some of the same songs with a more like rockin' band and then also like a very traditional tambura configuration. 
So the rhythm that we were hearing there that you said that the really umpa stuff mm. is, is typically Serbian or typically like South Serbian or I think I mean I think it's pretty Serbian and also like double like that double time dunka 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 like my friend Sanka who's from Macedonia she's like oh it's all dvojki it's all these like double like it's just so boring <laughs> you know like it's not really like exciting as a drummer it's like completely boring mm. but you know the national dance in Serbia is kolo which is about as you know, two, four time as it, as it gets, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, so that's, but you'll find that all over Serbia. Yeah. Um, and it's also like a pretty typical song form to have like a slow verse and a rhythmic chorus. But actually I mind that really duple feel a lot less when I get to move in and out of it. Typically like a Russian, like a Russian Roma or Ukrainian Roma is like the, which is like me, just makes me want to take the tambourine and like bash it over the head of whoever's playing it. Like, you know, it does not really speak to me because it's so predictable. But I think, I mean, Bregovic did use some of that, like to positive cinematic effect in some of his arrangements. But, you know, Shaban, I just thought we could return. We're now in the mid eighties mm-hmm. and, uh, in the mid eighties, Shaban made a great record called Pianitsa with, uh, the Slobodan Salievich Orchestra. So with one of the big brass bands. And I love it because it's just kind of anchors the music in place in Niche in Southern Serbia where he's from. And also just like takes up a lot of the space that could otherwise be allocated to like more cheesy arrangement concepts <laughs> mm-hmm. this one is called the uh, bunaresoro capaco from an adjacent tradition was asking like why is Balkan brass music cool that is why Balkan brass music is yeah. cool because it's right cool <laughs> yeah well there's an it's imi- got this like the like you were talking about the rhythm is this like it's got this little hitch in it but there's a little swagger that's built into it already you can't move to that mm. without 
this this feeling of owning it in your body. And on some level, you also can't not move to it. Yeah, exactly. Like, you have to, it's just, it's, I think there's something too about the frequency range that it occupies, mm-hmm. just like structurally that like, we feel bass in our bodies. We yeah. feel rhythm. You can be stone deaf and a brass band can be there in front of you and you will want to dance because you will feel what's happening in yeah. your body. And I think, you know, that's something undeniable. And it's something that is actually accessible in a very positive way about the tradition Yeah, is, is how physically you experience it. And yeah, I mean, you know, that's, that's the other thing. It's like, it, the, how the hierarchy becomes created based on what is accessible. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, you know, yeah, it's the gateway drug to Balkan music. Yeah, for sure. You know, for, for sure. a lot of people, just the way like in the eighties, it was the Bulgarian women's choir. Mm-hmm. And then now it's Balkan brass music. I mean, whatever, like if it gets the right people to come in and be interested and curious, fine, but just don't expect everything to be this like soul shaking booty bouncing, you know, like it's just not all, it's not all that way. Just to kind of shift things a little bit away from that, I've been thinking. I've been thinking a lot about gender. Cool. <laughs> if that's an okay segue oh, to yeah. make, I've been thinking about like the spaces that people occupy and the, the spaces that people are allowed to occupy, and also how that's changed over the last thirty, forty years within these traditions in particular. You know, just thinking about the accessibility, the way I was mentioning it about the the recording industry in Yugoslavia, and then also the music, the content of the music itself required more skill and more depth historically than it does now, because everything can be just done in post-production, like this podcast, for example. <laughs> you know, one of the things that, that really compromised the position of women even further within the Romani music circles was the influence of Western pop music in the imagery and the objective in the objectification and like really pigeonholing women to this very specific, deeply sexual or very shallow <laughs> sexual place, you know, and, and I think that the image of women within these traditions has been degraded consistently and, f- and rapidly over the last, you know, 20 years in particular, it's like, there was not a lot of respect for women in music. Like, how are you going to be a, how are you going to be playing music until three in the morning and have a family at home? Like, this is not a new question, but there's even less space for it in more traditional cultural structures. Mm-hmm. And so like, it didn't fit the model, this like really strong duality of like, you're a woman who's a wife and a mother or you are a whore. If you're not in the home and you're out in the street, like, what are you? You're working at night. You're working with men. You're like, so I think a lot of the women who really suffered as musicians, as singers, really, because that was the role, they came by it really honestly. They're suffering. You know, Vida moved to Sarajevo with her first husband, who was an accordion player, and she was never able to have children like he left her and she sings a lot about wanting to have children and not being able to and just that incredible sadness and Nedjalka Keranova who's one of my favorite singers ever from Bulgaria did have one child but also drank herself to death you know it's just terribly terribly sad situation for women and I think you know now if if I were in the position of being in the in one of these communities and I had a daughter who wanted to be 
a singer and I looked at what the model was, I'd be like, hell no, no way. It's not, it's not empowered. It's not honorable. It's deeply objectified and it's musically not a place of depth and value. Mm. I tend to not put people on a pedestal and I tend to look back with a really critical eye at the choices that different musicians made over the years, like Esma in particular, who had the agency to really be able to do something tremendous for women within her culture. And, you know, we can talk till we're blue in the face about her humanitarianism in raising 64 boys to be instrumentalists. She didn't bring up another young woman until she herself could not physically sustain a performance, and she had to. And for me, that's like a really big missed opportunity. But more than that, it's a choice. I think also, you know, especially coming from outside of a culture and always, you know, always, I will always be outside and I'm fine with that. You know, it's part of the reason that I, that I really didn't want to be an academic is because I want to be able to take people to task for who they are as people. I think it's important as I continue to shape and, and develop who I am and who I want to be and what I want to model and what I want to share. I mean, I remember Christos Covetas, when I was probably like 13, I was taking his Greek singing class at Balkan camp. And he said, it doesn't matter how good of a singer you are or what, how virtuosic of a musician you are if you're not a good person. It really just doesn't at the end. So, you know, I mean, I, that's not, you know, this is not even making friends for sure, but it's definitely, <laughs> you know, been a, an interesting thing to kind of grow up when you're a kid you have this structural thing in community where you're supposed to give people respect because they're your elders. And then if people are from the Balkans, then they even go on a higher pedestal in terms of authority. And as you get older, you, you kind of bridge that gap a little bit and you realize, oh, I can choose who my mentors are. I think that it's really important that when we study a tradition or immerse ourselves in another culture, just the way it's important we bring our musicianship, it's also important that we bring our sense of, you know, responsibility as humans toward one another and that we don't just give somebody a hall pass because they're super talented. But returning a little bit to that idea of, of gender, you know, one of the things that I find fascinating is that like a lot of these languages, Slavic languages and Roma language, they have a neuter, they have a neutral gender, masculine and feminine, they have a neutral gender. And yet there is remarkably little allowance for anything outside of a really strict binary. In terms of people, right? In terms of people, yeah. Ah! So across many genres and traditions, a lot of times my favorite voices are the ones that can't really be fit into a gender or one of those really like clear archetypes. And so, you know, I'm thinking like Um Kulthum, who just had this voice that was much bigger than any man or any woman, just like all of like this, the human voice. And so when I first heard John Sever, who is a Macedonian Roma woman who uh, is openly gay, who works mostly in Turkey, who's had like pretty colorful and intense life, who is also disabled, who has this voice that is just beyond I got really excited. And I remember when I heard this song, I was like, oh my God, this is the best song ever. This is from 1992. This is uh, Kemano Basha de Romenge, which 
came to occupy like a pretty big role in my musical life, but I didn't really understand the words until I, you know, started singing it a lot of years later. This song is about Roma unity and how important Roma unity is in order for any kind of change, any kind of positive change to happen. I mean, this was recorded in 1992, so it's like still pretty relevant, uh, but you just check out her voice because I think it really just transcends so many things that need to be transcended. <laughs> Super cool. Yeah. Just like grounded, free. You know, one of the cool things about YouTube is you can see some of like the music videos from mm -hmm. back in the day. So you can see videos of John Sivet when she was still like wearing a, like skirts and it was like, you know, the fashion of the early 90s, like it's all kind of a disaster. Like everything is big, the hair, the collars, the sleeves, the tutus. And she's like, there's this one where she's kind of like dancing around a little bit, like, and it's just so awkward. Like, you can just feel how deeply unnatural it is for her person to be acting out this, this feminine role. And since then, I mean, she started working a lot in Turkey, where I think there's a, maybe a slightly different idea of gender. Um, they have a long history of men who were, either transvestite or openly gay or kind of out more like counter tenors or even singers like Bülent Ersoy who transitioned in the midst of a career and stayed successful afterwards. And John Sivet has since shifted to dressing in suits and, you know, very short hair and, you know, with, with in open relationships with women. And thank God, I mean, that's just a, miserable thing. But, you know, a friend of mine once remarked when we were talking about sexuality, yeah, but it's easy for those people, she said, because they're super talented. And I thought, wow, you know, that is the thing, right? It's like there's room for room for someone who's outside the box if they're exceptionally talented, they can be forgiven. Mm -hmm. But I, I like to think that in their way, you know, people like John Sivet have kind of like gotten a little chunk out of the way, you know, opened a little, let a little bit of light in for future generations. 
Yeah. It's just so important to see anybody. Yeah, because at the same time, like, if your mom has seen them on TV, she's gotten one step closer. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Johnson, she's she's a pretty phenomenal singer. And also, um, just listen to one other track of hers from a few years later in 1996. This one is just, like, you can feel... Like hip hop is not totally there, but this song just like had that kind of kind of attitude and like some kind of drive behind it. Fast forward, obviously, like 20 something years, a lot of these sounds have been sampled, you know, from Arabic folk and classical music to like bad approximations of Balkan saxophone licks or, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, this is uh, Bori Kanigili. From John Severo. This song was, I had this on cassette and I had an old Volvo station wagon and I listened to this song on repeat more times driving back and forth from the Bay Area when I was like 20. I knew exactly how long to rewind it <laughs> to just like hit play and it would be right at the beginning of the song. So, Bori Kanigili from 1996. see what I mean I mean there's that kind of recitative let me just spit the story at you a little bit like it's less about melody and more about just telling the story that kind of stays in this range where it just moves forward and carries you along such a totally different texture and that you know that song and the song before John Stewart is from Macedonia so this is like mid 90s the advent of like real great old analog synthesizer it was a beautiful thing that happened, I think, with the delay in technology arriving. You know, there's like, it's not quite 10 years. I mean, now it's a lot, obviously. It's a lot shorter. But there was this, you know, until some of those, like, old Casios, like, showed up over there. It's great. Like, those samples are, like, so cutty. And then they're all from these, like, cassettes, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's already, like, just analog upon analog. <laughs> I mean, I don't love the synthesizer and how it replaces whole bands. Mm. But I just love like the kind of that bendy, that freedom and and um, weirdly in and out of tuneness sometimes of all of it, especially when you have a synthesizer and acoustic instruments together. There's a really nice push and pull that I think happens there. Does it always replace the whole band? I mean, you have to have some person to play the synthesizer. Can they really play like five instruments, or is it more typically that the the band sort of? added a synthesizer and maybe didn't have one or two other acoustic instruments. I mean, I think that's how it started, but now like the samples, I mean, the technology has gone so insane. It's like, I was talking to 
Kalin Kirillov. He has this MIDI accordion, and he's like, dude, I can be like an entire wedding band. Like, I have these samples that are such high fidelity, that are so close to the instrument themselves that like I can even phrase clarinet samples on the on the keyboard in a way that I can feel, you know. And I'm like, okay, dude, like kind of like halfway I believe it when I see it, you know, like I would rather probably hear him just play an old accordion like any day, but you know, it's gone really really far to the yeah. point where I mean, you know, I hope they can't ever replace singers, but <laughs> you know, those electric drum kits also those electronic drum kits have been around for a really long time and mm-hmm. I don't I don't love it. I mean, but whatever, you know, it's portable, it's flashy, it's like super hip. I mean, you're always going to have that divide in amongst musicians, you know. You're always going to have the people that are just like gear 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 gear, you know. <laughs> and then there's some people who's like, "This is a great drum. I'm just going to play this great drum." What what do you think the pressures are? Is it like money, you don't have to pay a bigger band or is it like are there are there still people who have the skill to play the acoustic instruments? Do people still want to hear them? I mean, I think the answer is yes and yes. I mean, the accordion already, when the accordion started to exist, the accordion ate up the space of a few musicians, right? Because you have melody and rhythm and harmony in one instrument, you know, and guitar does a similar thing. So there's definitely a time when it's economy and then there's a time when it's aesthetic preference. And I think sometimes, you know, like still in weddings, for example, like you, if you have a procession where you lead the bride it might just be like clarinet and accordion and drum, like, you know, in Bulgaria or in Macedonia, kind of keep it simple, keep it acoustic. And then necessarily like for the big dance party, like you might flesh out the sound and add, you know, the keyboards and play all the like current hits. I think keyboard has a similar role over there than it, than it does here. You know, like it just hire one guy with a keyboard and you're cool. I don't love the sound, but like it's very appropriate for like a lot of the popular Romanian Roma styles. That's exactly the sound that they're yeah. looking for. Bunka, 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 bunka. You know, like, okay, <laughs> cool. You know, yeah. yeah. Before it would have been whatever, you know, like cymbalom or accordion or, you know, more complex, but you know, try carrying a cymbalom around mm. on a flight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, good luck with that. Or even an accordion. Yeah, I mean, Peter has to take his accordion apart all the time. Oh, man. It's not great. No. I mean, those instruments are made out of wax and wood and leather. They're not meant to be, like, disassembled regularly. Well, I have one more song. Yeah. You have, is there, you want to listen to it? Yeah, totally. So this is, this is just um, one of my most, like, my favorite examples of Shaban, who's got the real storytelling, like, hold court vibe. That song, Chera Dale Chera Mamo, from Traiko, which kind of is doom, doom, doom. Doom, kind of going pulsing behind it. This one, uh, this Avayavai has a little bit of that kind of like expansive and grounded feel. Thank you. 
with all the experimentation there's some kind of baseline aesthetic that people return to you know I'm always happy when I see these kind of threads that manage to pull through uninterrupted I mean sometimes I think about that of like I'm not here to necessarily like totally change or reinvent anything within the tradition like sometimes I just feel like I'm here to just feed the sourdough starter of this <laughs> whatever of this song so that like in 20 years like it'll still be there and people can still make bread that like tastes like the bread that their grandparents made you know it's like this very basic thing of just keeping a song alive i wanted to talk about the form for a second we listened to a lot of things where the the beginning of the song was sort of more free and then it built up this tension towards this and then the beat comes in and then there's not is that is that typical well, in Serbia, it's super common. Also, like in Romania, I think to some extent, and I mean, I, was, I kind of made that joke about Russian Roma tradition. I mean, you need to like, you know, denigrate, but that is a pretty like, you know, there are these things that become emblematic. You know, again, it's that listening versus dancing mm. tradition. So mm-hmm. like when you're playing listening music, you can go in and out of time a lot. It's why I love playing with Peter, but it's like, I, it's why I don't like it when Peter people try to hire me and Peter to play for like dance events. I'm like, dude, we're not a dance band. Like we can have this fluidity of time when we're playing together. And like the dancers don't like trip over themselves. This is a big issue actually in the American Balkan community is that earlier generations, a lot of people came into the music first through the dance. And so there was a certain type of embodied knowledge about rhythm and like tempo and things like that. And also an understanding of the relationship between dancers and musicians. Whereas like when I was 14, about a lot, a whole wave of people in their twenties, like came in through the music first with very little interest in learning the dance. And that's a critical relationship that you have to understand you have to understand in your in the rhythm in your body, especially with some of the mixed meter stuff. If you're counting like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, like you don't understand that it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, or something like that. You know, like you're not gonna get the nuance and understand kind of where you can push and pull. 
And in Roma music, syncopation, playing with the relationship with the drummer, like not coming in on the downbeat, like stretching, like in Gashineat, like his phrasing. I tried to teach that song and I was like, oh man, this is so much harder than I realized because he's like, he's always moving around the beat, you know, but if you, but if you have the beat in your body and you don't have to think it, you are many, many steps closer to being able to push and pull. I mean, I've had to tell so many drummers like, dude, stop following me. Like you need to be stable and I need to play against you. And then when you get, you know, then when you're dealing with somebody who, where you both internalized it, then you can both be playing. And I think, you know, a lot of people have aversion to dancing or they think that like dancing in a line is like hokey. I'm like, well, yeah, if you go to a recreational folk dance event, you might think that, but if you go to actual context and you see a line of like 400 people like dressed to a T it's elevates the whole thing. And it's like damn sexy. And like, it's also contained and like, you can have a conversation with the person next to you and dance at the same time. And it's deeply social. Those are these kind of accompanying contextual pieces that I wish people understood that there's a, a subtlety and a real joy of being part of a larger organism dancing. It's not just about like free and bridled expression, which like there's a place for that too. There's a, there's a real tendency, especially in this kind of like dance as folk dance as exercise movement to just like, how can I get the maximum cardio impact out of each? It's like, no, 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 no. The way to learn how to dance the proper styling for, for Roma dances, especially as like, you know, more feminine approach wear shoes that don't stay on your feet. <laughs> like wear a slipper with a little bit of a heel. Like you can't do anything extraneous. Like it's all your feet have to be really grounded and shuffly. And then your hits all about the subtlety in your hips. So how should new listeners keep learning more? I think you learn a lot by listening. If we manage to just tag some of the names of these artists in the, in the paragraph describing this episode any one of those names typed into a browser window will take you on a journey and, you know, let that, let that kind of unfold organically. I mean, when I was 14 and there was like Napster, I would type in any Albanian word that I knew and, and I would download all 400 results that came up and maybe I would find three good songs, but you know, there are a lot of resources available. You know, don't just go out and watch Goran Bregovic movies. Try to figure out who the artists were that Bregovic exploited and go listen to them, you know. And once you have that taste of blood, <laughs> you know, you, you kind of, you can go and, you can go and find it. Of course, I, I offer myself as a resource too. I'm pretty easy to find and curiosity is what will save us. You know, if we're confused, we become curious. And the world gets a little smaller and more intimate. You know, if we're curious and we listen, I think we're, I think we're all right. Dear listeners, is the moral of the story and basically the motto of the show. 
Hey, this has been Every Record Ever Recorded. I'm Hannah, and my guest today was singer and teacher Eva Selena. We recorded this show on a summer afternoon in her parents' enchanted house in Santa Cruz, California, and then we went for really good tacos. Check the show notes or the show's website at everyrecordeverrecorded.com for a YouTube playlist of all today's songs if you'd like to hear them in their entirety, along with some further music exploration resources. And you can also sign yourself up on the show's mailing list to be the first to hear about new episodes. You can find Eva herself at evasalina.com. That's E-V-A-S-A-L-I-N-A.com. Thanks to my Balkan music pals, especially Rachel, Greg, Christos, and Zina. Thanks to Janet for tiptoeing around her own house. And thanks to Tacos Moreno for the really good tacos. There were some deep mom vibes in this recording session. So this episode goes out with love to my mom, the first musician I ever met. Do come back next time for a new episode about a different musical genre. And hey, thank you for listening. Cogrobotea,